0: Welcome to the EC Podcast. My name is Jonathan Mitchell. Today we continue our five-week series of episodes with the second message from our recent men's conference we hosted here at Eden Chapel. In this message, Pastor Chris Kendall from Oak City Baptist Church teaches on biblical headship. Pastor Chris says to our men, no one is going to stand in the gap for your family like you. So what should a biblical understanding of authority and leadership look like? Well, we invite you to give this message a listen to understand how to love and lead like our perfect Savior. And for our ladies, once again, we want to remind you to listen because this is the standard by which all husbands and fathers should be measured. We pray this blesses you.
1: Thank you, Pastor Kirby. I want to say as a preface to our time in the Word that it's really not fair. Now, I know the gospel frees us from lesser things like the concept of fairness, but to go after Kirby in a message that was absolutely perfect for where all of us are in this journey we call faith in Jesus, but I can also smell lunch. (laughs) Nevertheless, I am thrilled Really to be sharing in this kind of weekend aimed at encouraging and equipping men to be sons, dads, husbands, and spiritual leaders that God intended. So I want to say a special thank you to Pastor Aaron, Gary, Johnny for the vision and really the follow through in making this weekend possible. For those of you who are partnering from other churches, uh, this would not have happened apart from God's grace to them and their willingness to obey. And so we are the beneficiaries of their uh, support and we're grateful, guys. Thank you so much. I am both humbled and honestly a bit surprised to have been invited to speak into this masculine moment considering that I'm wearing stretchy pants right now. <laughs> Somewhere along the way, it is said among my church family that I lost my, co- my man card in the floral section of a Hobby Lobby. <laughs> the only way I can get it back is if I kill a mountain lion with my bare hands. <laughs> I was... Uh, Earlier this year, I attended the Southern Baptist Convention with 21,000 of my dearest friends, and uh, on our way into the Nashville Music City Hall, which is this massive conference center, there was a a group of uh, anti-whatever-we-stood-for that claimed the Scripture as their guide, standing outside of the entrance with megaphones and signage. Now, it's, it's... No doubt that every single person there was miserable. You could see it on their faces. And so as happy people, at least before the conference started, began to make their way into the center, we were being preached at, sermonized to, uh, through a megaphone. And so I was there with another one of our Seymour pastors, Glenn Metz, Um, who's a dear friend of mine. And we were walking, and I saw the commotion, and I thought, let's walk through it. Not around it, but let's just have a little fun. It's going to get, I imagine, intense and a bit heavy in the room, so let's just, let's just enjoy ourselves walking through this line of people holding up their signs, condemning everyone who passes by. And so we're walking, we come through, and I say, excuse me, and in the middle of the preaching, the man with the megaphone stops, and he turns, he aims that megaphone at me, and he screams these words, and by the way... Men who wear skinny jeans are going to hell. Well, if you know Glenn Metz, pastor, shepherd, man after God's own heart, he became angry, which is rare. And he turned, I said, no, I got it. And I looked back at the guy and I said, they're khakis. (laughs) I mean, they weren't. I was wearing skinny jeans. All that said, I am really, really thankful that biblical manhood isn't about clothing. And it's all about Christ. It's all about Jesus, and I'm not here to shine a spotlight on myself as this pinnacle of biblical leadership or masculinity. I'm just the guy operating the spotlight, pointing to Jesus, shining the light of the one who sets the standard for all of us, and that's my aim. My aim is to tackle the assignment given to me, which is labeled reclaiming biblical headship. The apostle Paul has a powerful word to say concerning biblical headship, and perhaps the most prominent pastors and the longest passage in all the Bible that deals with God's design for leadership within the marriage unit, really within the home, and it's found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. So if you brought a Bible, open up, read there, I'll join Kirby in saying that if you don't have a Bible, then use your phone or ask Pastor Aaron, I'm sure they've got plenty available to you. That way you can interact with the text yourselves. We'll stay there for a moment and then we're going to turn to John 13, just giving you a heads up as we make our way through the scriptures. Paul, writing to wives and husbands, said this, wives, submit to your own husbands to the Lord. We're not going to spend a lot of time on what it means for wives to be subject to their husbands, by the way, as unto the Lord wives submitting to the husband is an act of worship to God not a stroke of our ego he says wives submit to your husbands he says for the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ the standard is the head of the church his body and is himself its savior now as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands Verse 25, and, and we'll refer back to this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now we see in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, as he's wrapping up some final instructions concerning the family unit, he drops a crystal clear bomb of truth that husbands are to be head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. And so Jesus becomes the standard through which we understand headship. Now regarding husbands, headship has not been and will never be about superiority, but instead it's a statement of divine order. While wives and husbands are equal in value as image bearers, they are different in role and function in God's economy, in the marital relationship. So husbands are designed by God, catch this fellas, to lead their wives. To lead their families. If I could sum up today's entire message, it would be three words. Lead, love, and low. But don't be mistaken. You were designed by God to lead. That's what headship means. It's a divinely given authority to lead. Yet if I were to pull the room, I imagine most husbands would acknowledge that there's a deficiency in regards to leading their home that there's a sense of inadequacy when it comes to headship in the family. I imagine if I were to ask what is one of the greatest struggles you have as a man, perhaps piled in there with lust or pornography or apathy as was spoken of earlier, perhaps we would all agree it's really hard to lead at home. It's really difficult to be the spiritual leader in my family. To lead my kids and my bride in a way that honors the Lord. Now perhaps that's true because many of us have adopted this mantle of provider. I provide a roof over our heads and food on the table. And if it takes me 80 hours a week in order to do it, to give my family the stuff they want, and so that we can live to some sort of degree that is acceptable in our culture then I'm all in. Hear me, it is okay and it is good and it is noble and God-honoring to provide for your family. But you know what else does that? Possums. A roof and food. What separates us? That is our biblical calling to lead. What our families need is more than a provider, but a leader who happens to provide. And not just any kind of leader, a Jesus kind of leader. With that, we turn our attentions to the one, the standard. We turn our attention to Jesus, and we do that by looking at John chapter 13. So, so flip back to John chapter 13. Jesus' ministry is not only in full bloom, but it is near the end in regards to his earthly ministry. We know this because he's hours away from his arrest, faulty trials, bludgeoning, and eventual death by crucifixion. Just before this occasion, Jesus gathers to celebrate the Passover feast with his disciples. A meal that commemorated God's miraculous deliverance of the people of Israel out from under Egyptian captivity and oppression. A meal that Jesus would take and re Fashion would repurpose to signify a greater commemoration, and that is His ability to rescue people from not Egyptian captivity, but the captivity that comes with sin. It's at this meal, specifically at the beginning of the meal, that Jesus sets a standard for us. He serves as a guideline for what we'll call leveraging Leadership or leveraging authority. Let's read about it beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father, had given all authority into his hands, and he had come from God, and he was going back to God. By the way, what a sweet moment for Jesus. For the joy set before him, he's going home. Verse 4. He rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. And when he came to Simon Peter, the drama queen of the disciples, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm going to do now, you don't understand, but afterwards, you will understand, by the way. None of the disciples got it right until they saw Jesus alive post-crucifixion. They all misunderstood them. That's a little grace to you and I today. Now what we have that they didn't have is the full-time indwelling of the Holy Spirit for those who have trusted in Jesus for salvation. But man, they missed it. They were rubbing shoulders with Him, having a meal with them, and they didn't get it, and Jesus knew that. That's grace, by the way, in there. You don't get it now. But when I bleed out and I come back, it'll make more sense to you. So look at verse 8. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And then Jesus said to him, If I do not wash your feet, you've got no share with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not just my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said, Calm down. He said, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who it was to betray him. And that is why he said, not all of you will be clean. If we're to lead like Jesus, if we're to operate in our God-given, God-designed calling to lead our families, then we need to lead with love. I had a little anecdotal joke that I was going to play into some part of this because of just my version of masculinity. Anyways, um, it was going to be like, I'm a a lover, not a fighter, but that's not the claim here. The idea here is I'm a lover who fights, who fights for my family, who fights against dark. By the way, if you're not willing to love and to fight for those things that you love and those people that you love, no one else will. No one's going to stand in the gap for your family like you. Far too many of us are sitting by apathetic and disinterested while culture's killing the things we claim to love most. So if we're going to lead, we've got to lead with love. What's incredible about this scenario, this narrative concerning the final meal Jesus enjoyed with the disciples before his crucifixion is that he was fully aware of what loomed in the foreground. And you see that in verse 1. It says, Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart, that word depart means to leave through death, out of this world to the Father. Now what what was the hour? This was the hour of His suffering at the hands of angry men in accordance with the plan of His own Father culminating with His death by crucifixion. And what does He do in these final fleeting moments leading up to the cross? Well, I'll tell you what he did. It shocked the disciples, but it also showcased the truth that godly leaders love all the way. Look halfway through verse 1. It says, he loved his own. Having loved his own. Oh, that's a good word. Personal reference to his disciples. In John, the author of this gospel account of Jesus' ministry was the right guy To add this nuance, this detail, into the narrative. And having loved his own. You see, John, the author of this gospel, second only to the Apostle Paul by way of Holy Spirit contribution to the New Testament, this John never referred to himself by his given name. But only by his relationship to Jesus. Over and over again, he calls himself the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loves. That word beloved means to be worthy of love. To John, being worthy of divine love, it not only formed his identity, but it informed his ministry. He never got over the fact that God saw him in all of his brokenness, his rebellion, his unrepentance, his inconsistency, and loved him anyways demonstrated that love most profoundly in the person and work of Jesus he loved them says having loved his own that word own is important for God so loved the world absolutely I can come across even the most distant stranger on the street look them square in the eye and say without hesitation God loves you they can prop up their resume I don't love him, I don't even believe in him This is what I've done. I could look at their resume and say, phooey. That's a Greek word. Right? God loves you. God loves all. But there is a special love applied to his own. Verse 1, it says, Jesus loved his own to the end. This portion of the verse can really be interpreted two different ways. Jesus loved his disciples up to death, unto death, or literally Jesus loved his disciples to the uttermost all the way. Both apply. Jesus loved all the way. It's a reminder that Jesus loves fully, unconditionally, faithfully, eternally, and sacrificially those who are his It's a kind of love that's not predicated on emotion. It's how we feel. I say to couples all the time, because my wife and I came from a difficult season. We are a picture of God's grace. We are a trophy of grace. And so we have an opportunity to speak into lives of many broken and weary couples. And I have to remind them all the time, listen, family, love is first and foremost an act of the will. Accompanied by emotion, not controlled by it. Let me just say a word and pause there for a moment. It doesn't mean that love ought to be emotionless. It, hear me, th- this is a rabbit. Let me chase it, we'll shoot it and we'll come back. Are you ready? I can tell you how many couples I meet with where the wife is wounded because the husband is the provider and the protector But he's emotionally unavailable. There's no tenderness or cultivating or nurturing that Paul would say ought to be the standard by which husbands love their wives in Ephesians chapter 5. Right? Well, I'm not emotional. I'm sure your friends have been around you when you've watched your team play football. Yes, you are. It's selective. And the people that ought to know and sense and see tangible evidence that we have a deep affection for them get none of it. Jerk is not a spiritual gift that God would have us apply to our wives. That's just who I am. That's a cop-out. You are new creation in Christ the old is gone behold the new has come he is working in you his spirit is able however this kind of love we're back is not predicated on emotion exclusively it's not built on reciprocation whether or not they love me back situation what's going on in my life or validation whether or not they deserve it this is a love without limits fellas hear me Love is the operating system of biblical headship. It's the operating system of biblical headship. I've met so many men who have found Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. That's it. And with this newfound awakening to God's calling and design, they try to force that on their wives. And it doesn't work. No credibility. The Bible says it. We're going to do it. Make me a sandwich. I'm sure it's never been that blatant with any of you. I've never struggled with this, but I've read about lesser men who have. (laughs) Brothers, don't try to lord them into submission. Love them into submission. If we focus less on wives' submit and more on husbands' love... I imagine submission wouldn't be a problem. Consider Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The meal Jesus repackaged and refurbished to be the greater mechanism of remembrance concerning a greater deliverance that would come post crucifixion and resurrection was the greatest picture of sacrificial love. The meal itself set to atone for the admonition Paul gives later on. Unconditional, sacrificial love. A dear brother of mine, the smartest man I've ever met, he came to faith in Christ while trying to disprove the validity of the Scriptures. His name is Jack Sofield. He's 89 years old. He's a bit of a savant. You could go to his office even today, regardless of his advanced age, he could tell you a line from a book on his shelf and the page number. Out of college, he was an underwater photographer for National Geographic until he decided to become a physicist and travel the world doing symposiums and all these things, in particular for oncological research. So he's that guy. By the way, that guy's never fun having in your service when you're preaching, because he's... Forgotten more Bible than you've studied. Anyways, Jack Sofield um, is a lover of the scriptures. So if you look through his Bible, it's just filled with notes and Greek references, Hebrew, Aramaic, all the just little nuanced and detailed notes that a man with his mind has. And yet, when you get to Ephesians 5.25, right next to that verse, it simply hosts two words. Doug did. It seems like the least intelligent note in his entire Bible. That is until you understand the context. Doug was Jack's son. One evening while he was upstairs taking care of whatever he needed to take care of while his wife and children were downstairs, there was a knock at their door. What turned out to be a random event in the eyes of the law became a tragic event in the story of this family. There was a knock at the door. Doug's wife opened the door. And a disturbed, mentally sick man entered into the house and began stabbing her almost immediately. Doug upstairs heard the sound of his wife's cries. He ran downstairs, moved her out of the way, and got between her and the knife-wielding man. He screamed, go, as he's being stepped. Go, leave, get help. So she did. But it was too late for Doug. He sustained too many stab wounds, lost too much blood, and died there in the threshold of his home. Jack and his wife Carolyn would tell you today, that's the kind of love a true husband who appreciates biblical headship leads with. Right? Like, I'll put myself in between and sacrifice whatever I got to to show you how much I love you. Now, I imagine for many of us, we're not having to position ourselves between our spouse and a knife wielding intruder. But perhaps we gotta position ourselves in taking the wounds between our wife and that porn in our pocket. Whatever that sin is that seeks to destroy us and devour our family, if we're to have any victory, we ought to lead with love. To love God most and our spouse as a great priority in our own store that we willingly sacrifice whatever up to and including our lives to show them. Jesus showed us, right? Having loved his own to the very end, up to and including his life. It was love that compelled Jesus to die. Before that, it was love that compelled Jesus to dive into the lowly act of washing his disciples' feet. To lead like Jesus means we lead with love but it also means we lead with lowliness. Look at verse 3 again of John 13. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come from God, and that He was going back to God. It's in this verse that John shows us Jesus' authority over all, over heaven, over earth, visible and invisible. It's in this verse that we see the Father had given all things into Jesus' hand. Not only is these the most important, but the most powerful person in that room. But it is also true that he was the most powerful being in the entire universe. And what does he do with that kind of authority? As the head of the church, what does he do as the head over all creation? What does he do as the divine only begotten Son of God? How does he leverage such power? Verse 4, he rose from the supper. He laid aside the outer garment and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist family the hands that control the universe humbly washed the dirty feet of 12 undeserving men jesus leveraged his authority by exercising humility lowliness and like jesus lowly leaders gotta start somewhere Look back at verse 4. He says, it says, Jesus rose from the table. At some point, Jesus began the process of washing his disciples' feet. In order to do so, he had to push away from the comforts of the table so that he could pick up that stinking towel. Talk about humility. Headship, leveraging authority, is always less about tyranny and more about the towel. Jesus said so much concerning his ministry aim. You remember that in Mark chapter 10? Jesus talking about the importance of service. Listen to his personal testimony. My son is doing a beta speech for the beta convention coming up. I'm not saying that to brag about my kids being smart, though my wife and I do, in fact, breed excellence. <laughs> I bring up his speech because... In front of many, many, many people, most of which are lost, he's going to talk about the greatest kind of leader in all the world, and that is a servant leader maximized in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And he'll quote Mark chapter 10, verse 45. You know what it says, don't you? For the Son of Man came into the world not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see how it all comes together, the meal that signifies the greatest act of sacrificial service captured in the death of Jesus, the Jesus who set the standard from which Paul preaches to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church in sacrificial service, in all humility. The very same Jesus that Paul said humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross men it is not about how high we go but how low we go in ministry to others Jesus started somewhere he pushed back from the comforts of the table in order that he might be free to take up that towel By the way, this is not a kind of lowliness that simply happens to us. I prayed a prayer. I've been working out my salvation for a little bit right now, and all of a sudden I'm just humble. That's not how it works. I wish it did. I can't put Philippians chapter 2 up against my forehead and by some miraculous osmosis gain humility. Much like love, which is a choice, so is humility. And here's what's crummy about it. If humility is the goal, the path is humiliation. Every time. Jesus understood that. And so he pushed back. He stood up. He took off. And he picked up so that he was in the position to stoop down. Lowly leaders stoop. What's interesting is that this... Upper room became an object lesson. Right? Like every element Jesus was using to teach. And it's important to see all that Jesus teaches, but in the final moments he shared with his disciples, don't miss it. There's something to be taken. So Jesus, using this room as an object lesson, did something. Unthinkable. He removed his outer garment. You see that there? Rising from the table, he removed his outer garments. Do you know what those outer garments would have included? His priestly robe. His rabbinical uh, sash. All the trappings outwardly that would have shown that he was in fact the rabbi, the teacher, the master of his followers. He removed, in a sense, the garments of authority and picked up the garment of humility. This would have been a shocking moment to the disciples who were still convinced that Jesus, as the Messiah, would be this militaristic leader who would through brute force, bring Israel out from under pagan, oppressive rule of Rome and establish them as a prominent state in the Middle East, really among the world. That's the reason I think Peter was so insistent in verse 8 when he replied, you shall never wash my feet. Every single word in the original text is emphatic. It's as if he's shouting this. Don't you touch my feet. You shall never funny trying to say never to Jesus. You shall never wash my feet. Why in the world would he push back so adamantly? Because of what foot washing meant. Y'all know the story. If you've been around church, you've ever heard about foot washing. You know that it was considered the lowliest of household services. Even according to Jewish law and traditions regarding the relationship between a teacher and his disciples, a teacher had no right to demand or expect that his disciples would wash his feet. It was absolutely unthinkable that the master, the rabbi, the leader would wash his disciples' feet. And yet Jesus did. There's no one more countercultural than Jesus. There's no, more, no one more progressive than Jesus. His activity squashes the status quo. This is just one example of it. And Yet in the washing of the disciples' feet, Jesus is teaching us over and over and over again that lowly leaders willingly stoop down to meet people in broken places. And I don't know if you've ever been there, but I imagine that statement has resembled your marriage a time or two. Those broken places. I mentioned a moment ago that when my wife and I got here, Kirby, eight years at Oak City. But the condition under which I landed at Oak City was questionable to say the least. We crash landed back to Seymour. We didn't come back here because we felt ever so led of the Holy Spirit to come home. I never wanted to come home to Sevier County. I was going places. Not in regards to ascending platforms, but just anywhere away from Sevier County. And yet life happened. My marriage shattered. In the swirl of scandal and controversy, we landed in Seymour, Tennessee. My wife and I separated, careening towards divorce. The little old Oak City said, we heard you back in town, pastor. Our pastor's leaving. Would you preach for us? I said, I appreciate the invite. But I got my kids three days a week. I'm working another three days. And to say that my marriage is on life support is a gross understatement. But thanks for the offer. The lead deacon said, what would you say if we told you we knew that already? I said, I'd question your leadership. Click. By God's grace, I preached in that pulpit. Y'all cried every week as a supply preacher. You just cried every week. Couldn't believe I was in anybody's pulpit. Had pastors encourage me, challenge me, go preach the word. Um, And there, eight years later. And by the way, I'm not at Oak City because of love and loyalty, though I do love them and I am loyal to them. I'm there at a burden. Burden trumps all the other bells and whistles out there. But, But I remember during that season, of separation, all I could see was the offense against me. And so I prayed a very dangerous prayer. If I could go back in spiritual hindsight, I would have. But thanks be to God, kind of, that we don't have access to some sort of time machine that can take us back. And so I said, God, God, Show me me in this. In all his faithfulness, though all I wanted him to do was coddle me like a child, he began to discipline me like a son. And he showed me my pride, my arrogance, my independence. God showed me as he pulled back the curtain to the inner corridors of my heart that I had convinced myself that did not exist. And one resounding theme kept popping up. You refuse to get low. You escaped humility's call. And you shirked my example to build your own kingdom. Mm. Then I turn to John 13 and I'm reminded that the lowly leader recognizes that there is no task beneath them. Not one. If the task itself wasn't lowly enough, then we're winding down. Look at the people whose feet Jesus was washing. I mean, one's demonic. Look back at verse 2. During the supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus. The others were dirty. Some were disillusioned to Peter. Ultimately, they would become defectors and deniers of the very same Lord they professed to follow. What a bunch of losers. What a mess. And knowing all this. Jesus pushed back, stood up, took off, picked up, and stooped down to wash the skank-nasty feet of the unfaithful, betraying, denying band of losers. And he did that as an example for us. Fellas, this is our ministry at home. This is our marriage And half the times it feels like a loser serving a loser. But we got to remember, we were the loser, not Jesus. And by the way, when we place our faith and trust in Him, we transition from losers to those who have been won. This is our ministry. Jesus says, if then, in verse 14... Your Lord and your teacher that's washed your feet. You also ought wash one another's feet. There's an oughtness to it. Verse 15. When I have given you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Those who have been one wash feet. There's no task beneath us no task beneath the one willing to stoop to honor the legacy of Jesus fellas real men leverage lowliness by stooping low to minister to others wives children grandchildren to love to lead like Jesus means we love and we get low we honor his standard in my office there is a picture uh, up in uh, one of the bookshelves. It's a terrible frame. I uh, would get a new one at Hobby Lobby, but again, I try not to be seen there often. By the way, masks made it real easy to maneuver through Hobby Lobby without feeling the judgmental stare of others. Anyways. Um, it's got this terrible frame on it. It's an old picture from when my wife and I were 16 years old. It was only like a handful of years ago. Plus 20. Anyways, um, the picture is uh, difficult to see, but um, our, our heads are kind of on each other's shoulder. It looks like we're praying. And that picture was sent to me 10 years after my wife and I were married. And, and I look at that picture all the time because I remember the context of it. Pastor, we were, we were sitting in a youth service at a beach camp. And there was a foot washing that took place. And at 16 years old, I knelt down and I began to wash my future bride's feet. And for the first time, I never told her this because I was by no means a predictive prophet. And I had no idea whether or not this was actually come to pass. But for the first time in my life, I looked and I thought, best guess, I'm looking to the eyes of my future bride. And I was watching her feet, and someone. This was before some of you younger guys. This was before you could take a picture of everything with your phone. So this is what we heard: <laughs> snap. Someone with those janky little disposable. Y'all remember that? Like that was. But that's when life was easier. Not taking pictures, but just less junk. So they took a picture, snapped that, had it printed, and sent us ten years later when my wife and i crash landed back here it was as if god had pressed this word of leading with love and lowliness so deeply in my heart i could not help but to go find that picture pull it out put it next to my bed and to pray this bold prayer god help me for the rest of my life to wash her feet I'd forgotten that somewhere along the way. But I'm the head of the home. I wear the pants in the family. I call the shots. No, 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 no. I wash your feet. Man, that's how we ought to leverage our authority, our God-given headship. With love and lowliness, to the most precious gifts God has ever given us outside of Jesus. I gotta ask and then we'll pray. I'm out of time I guess I don't know. Um, Who is it in the room that in between sessions or during lunch needs to call their wife and say baby, honey, darling, sweet cheeks I don't know what your term of endearment is but go with me. (laughs) A couple of phrases. One, I love you. And Some of that may need to be followed up by, and I'm sorry, I haven't shown it. And if God gives me a number of days for the rest of my life, I'm going to wash your feet. Oh, listen, listen. A wife has no problem submitting to the leadership of a husband in the home when he loves like that and leads that way. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, we, as the song declared earlier, we are at your mercy. Who would we be? What would we become? Where would we go apart from your mercy and grace? God, we're so thankful for Jesus, the example he's given us. And at the same time, we're really sorry that we have failed to uphold it. In part because we've forgotten it. What that really means, Lord, is we refuse to remember it. But I'm so thankful for weekends like this that we can come together centered on your word and the example of your boy to see what you can do in us, to us, and through us by the power of your Holy Spirit. So would you work in us right now? Lord, would you break us where we need breaking? Would you shake us where we need shaking? Would you mold us and shape us where we need shaping? So that we can lead like Jesus. Father, make us bold, but help us never use boldness as an excuse to be rude. Or unkind. Make us men of conviction to lead even when it's unpopular with our family. But also instill within us a deepening affection to wrap our arms around and to leverage our words to encourage the gift of our wives, our future wives for those who are younger and not yet married. Father, season us with everything we need to serve. And Lord, if there's any ounce of self-righteousness, would you obliterate it? If there's any residue of pride, would you undo it and destroy it? Would you bring forth in your, kind, your kindness and your mercy and your goodness and grace within this group of men the fruit of love and lowliness? And we're going to give you the, the credit for it. We've already shown we can't do it. But we're confident you can and you will. So would you start today? Would you start here? Would you start with us? That is our prayer. That is our heart. And we're going to need you to come through because we're weak and inconsistent. So we praise you in advance for the good things you are and will do. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you again for joining us today on the EC Podcast. We pray that this message blessed you and encouraged you with a true understanding of biblical headship. Again, we want to remind you, if you're not a part of a Bible-believing, gospel-centered church, we have our doors open here for Sunday service at 10.30 a.m. every Sunday, and midweek teaching every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. If you're outside the area, we encourage you to find a Bible-believing church. Thank you, and God bless.